Good afternoon, Wallace Chapman on the program. The panel, you are with Ruth Money this afternoon. Also, Professor Alan Blackman and this first up, political party donations have been the subject of an in-depth article on RNZ by data journalist Farah Hancock. The National Party has raked in more than seven times more in donations than Labour since the start of 2021, $8.2 million followed by Act on 4.2 mil since 2021. The Green Party, 1.4 million, ahead of Labour, almost 1.1 million. The biggest one-off donation this year has come from one Warren Lewis, who's involved in a sheet metal business. He donated half a million to National in June. New Zealand's rules allow businesses to make donations to parties with no limits on the amount which can be given. Does this mean that rules are tilted towards those with the deepest pockets. Dr. Bryce Edwards from Victoria University has written and researched uh, on the issue of political donations for some time. Dr. Edwards, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. As you will be aware, not a new issue, Bryce, but what is different, if anything, with these figures here? There does seem to be a lot more money coming into New Zealand politics, and it is just Unfortunately, going to one party, national, so the quantums involved are quite big. So as you said in the introduction, uh, half a million dollars in one donation to national from a manufacturer and plenty of others that are around the 100,000 mark. And this is quite a lot more than we're used to in New Zealand politics. So something has changed and national does tend to do better than other parties in raising uh, money from uh, business and wealthy individuals. They don't always... Uh, do the best. So in the past, uh, Labour has done better than National, and it's normally the case that money, money follows success. So when a party is doing very well in the polls, uh, they, those parties do get more donations. So back in 2020, Labour did get a lot more than National. But at the moment, yep, National really is well ahead, and it is um, quite interesting. Right, so it's the scale of donations, yeah. yeah. And a lot of money, Bryce, um, came in prior to the election policies rolling in. So does this perhaps reflect a desire to have a change in government? I think that's generally right. Um, it's a bit hard to see what the motivations are for wealthy individuals giving money. They have different reasons. But generally, yes, they like to back a winner. They um, they won't back national when they're uh, doing poorly in the polls, but it looks like there is a, a very good chance of a change of government. So I think business people like to get behind it. Um, maybe they're even anticipating you know, the fact that uh, a new government will need to make thousands of decisions. And um, it's handy if uh, you've already made good friends with people making decisions so that they you know, can be encouraged to make the right decisions. Ruth? Yeah, um, Dr. Edwards, I was wondering, because as Wallace quite rightly said, a lot of the donations have come in before policy, right? Is that yeah. is that a normal, forgetting the quantum, yeah. is that quite normal in terms of other election periods? Yeah, I, there's always going to be a bit of a, um, a mix. Um, some donors will donate to a political party because of particular policies and they like uh, you know, the sort of manifesto that a party's putting out. But, no, it's a real mix. Um, some will just donate because they want to help the party even before the uh, policies are announced, which is, yeah, what's happened in this case. And some of the commentators are saying that they think that that is because there is a, a push from a certain 
uh, group of individuals to change the government, so they are um, throwing lots of money in early. Is that? Yeah, I think so. Um, there's no doubt that the business community is normally more favourable to national, and uh, not always, but normally, and um, that there seems to be a lot of discontent in that commercial sector at the moment with the current government. And so, yeah, some of those people really want to put their, their money where their mouth is and help a change of government. Alan, <clears throat> yeah, um, reading through a couple of articles on this, I saw that um, Elizabeth Kerikeri gave $39,102.98 to the Greens, so I'm wondering if she wants her money back on that one. But um, I guess this inevitably brings up the question of state funding of uh, political parties, which tends to rear its head sort of every time around election time, I think. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Because, um, you know, obviously we're in a situation here where everybody is free to give whatever they want to whomever they want, and... um, Obviously, it's it's going disproportionately to a couple of parties here. Uh, would state funding even things up? Yeah, that's a really good question. And of course, we already do have some uh, state funding. Uh, obviously, with the broadcasting allocation for parties at elections, uh, we've got about $4 million each uh, election for that. But they also have huge budgets at Parliament that are essentially taxpayer-funded um, electioneering budgets, and these are in many millions of dollars each year. I think it might be up to about $40 million a year shared out amongst the party in terms of money that's supposed to be for parliamentary activities, but inevitably is spent on pretty much campaigning. But, yeah, it's a good question about whether more money should be given to the political parties to, you know, um, so that they're not so reliant on private sources of income. And there's always, I don't know, there's lots of difficulties with it. One is that it's very unpopular with voters. Um, you know, these things tend to be proposed um, when politicians are quite unpopular. And so the idea of giving them more money from the public yeah. purse doesn't hmm. seem to fly very well. But also there's big questions about what happens when we give them money. Does it actually have some unintended consequences, such as you know, kind of freezing the party system? It's giving kind of an incumbent um, reward to those already there, and it means it's very hard for new parties to rise up mm. and um, and get into parliament. And and you know, back in the old days when I was a youngster, I think you know, Labour was very much supported by the unions. But now I see, like the PSA, for example, they're eighty thousand member union, and they're not affiliated to Labour, which surprised me a lot. Well, they and say they're not. I <laughs> no, I wasn't sure when when I did lots of research and reading. Okay, they weren't. I don't well, know, Bryce. What do you say? A difference between there's always a difference between an official affiliation, uh, and so there are about mm. I don't know five or six unions in this country that have an official affiliation to the Labour Party, so they are part of the Labour Party, and there's then lots of other unions, and there used to be a lot more, but mm. there's a lot of other unions that uh, are probably more informally aligned with Labour, and yeah, there was there's a big mix between them, just in the same way that Federated Farmers isn't affiliated with National, but okay. they have a huge affinity. Yeah. 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 Some people might say, well, you know, so what? Because money doesn't translate to the polling booth, does it? Yeah, I mean, political scientists spend a lot of time trying to prove that it does or doesn't. Uh, And, yeah, there is no strong consensus that more money does get you more votes. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But one thing it does do is it can corrupt the process. It can mean that uh, elected politicians 
are then beholden to the people that have uh, paid for them to you know <laughs> succeed, and that can lead to lots of problems. So I, I think what we're seeing at the moment is uh, a bit more scrutiny of who's giving money to what parties, and that really is the best thing that we can hope for. And certainly if there is a change of government, there needs to be a lot more focus on who's given National these very large donations and what you know they might get from it. Yeah, just finally, um, Bryce, in your opinion, what would make elections in this country fairer, if indeed they need to be fairer? Um, I think I've said this on the show before. I would lower the threshold. I I just think that uh, it's a big shame that you've got um, huge numbers of people who feel they can't vote for other minor parties, uh, or they do vote for them and their votes don't count, essentially. Uh, I think that would even things up. Um, But there's lots of other tweaks. Uh, We're certainly not a perfect democracy, and it would be great if there were actually just more people involved in political parties. So we used to have mass membership parties and hundreds of thousands of people would join them. They would fundraise, they would do you know, uh, sausage sizzles and all sorts of things. And those branches were actually the light and blood of the parties, making you know, policy decisions, uh, running the parties, whereas that's all disappeared now. And I think our politics for democracy is poorer for it. And and why has it disappeared? Is it not cool anymore? Or I, I do yeah. wonder the same thing. Mm. Um, well, it's happened throughout the world. Um, political parties have kind of hollowed out. Um, I mean, partly it's just because we're busy and we've got other things to do. You know, um, if you think back to the nineteen fifties, joining a political party was kind of one of the only you know things you could do and uh, to be involved in politics or um, for entertainment and meeting people. Whereas there's just so much more going on. But I also think, to some extent, members have been pushed out. Politics has become professionalised, and so it's, um, it's the you know uh, it's the PR people, it's the pollsters that are actually uh, and the fundraisers that are really the people running the show, and just not really room for activists anymore. Certainly, interesting topic, isn't it, Dr. Edwards? Kia ora. Thank you uh, again for your time. This Bryce Edwards there from Victoria University. He's um, long followed that issue of uh, political donations. Uh, yes, um, political parties being hollowed out. Over time, it'd be interesting to know actually um, if you do belong to uh, a political party, why? Why do you do it? I'd love to know. Uh, motivations 2101, 18 past four, the panel. Well, Japan is set to begin the process of dumping more than a million tonnes of treated water from the destroyed Fukushima nuclear power plant as early as tomorrow, the Japanese government has said. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida instructed Tokyo Electric Power Holdings to start the process this week. The 2011 nuclear meltdowns were caused by a massive earthquake and tsunami which destroyed the plant. People in the Pacific region, South Korea, China, have raised concerns, as have Japanese fisheries groups. The water disposal will take decades to complete. With us, Dr. David Krofcik, Senior Lecturer in Physics at the University of Auckland. Dr. Krofcik, welcome. Uh, Thank you for for the invitation. Pleasure. So the IAEA, the uh, Atomic Energy Agency, um, they've greenlit this. Um, Tell us more. Is it safe? Yes, actually it is. But I just want to say first, uh, not all one million tons is going to be released right away. Only about uh, 20 or 25 percent of that has actually been 
filtered, cleansed to uh, an appropriate level of the uh, cancer-causing radioactive nuclei from the nuclear fission reactors. Um, what's left is tritium and, and some carbon, carbon-14, these two natural isotopes. So there's only about 20%, and, and that's why it's going to spread for 30 years. Uh, it'll take a long time to filter and then possibly refilter and refilter water from the remaining 70-75% of that uh, million tons. And that's why it's going to take so long. But once the water is filtered, um, independent labs from around the world uh, have shared samples of the filtered water and it shows that everything is in the World Health Organization guidelines. So it should be okay. Well, David, would you drink it? Would you drink a glass of water of this treated water? <laughs> drink, I, I, I drink, I've, I had glasses of water by swallowing seawater, um, which is essentially what this is, um, because tritium is another type of water. It, it's literally water. They're chemically virtually identical. And yeah, I would, um, but it would be an unpleasant experience and it might come up <laughs> back the way it came down. Um, so it's, huh. it's not dangerous in itself. Um, it's a natural sink. The ocean is a natural sink for tritium. And if someone had asked me if where, where would I store tritium? Well, I, I would ask, where did nature store it? And nature has stored our tritium in the oceans. And so as long as we filter out all the other dangerous uh, cancer-causing radioactive material from the reactors, then that I would certainly give this a, a, a try. I would taste it. Okay. Well, David, we've got another scientist on the show, be it uh, uh, from the uh, chemistry. <laughs> would you like to drink some? <laughs> Alan Blackman. <clears throat> Well, well, you drink it. Yeah, well, it's funny, actually, because the example that I have chosen was um, if you drink a glass of water, just bog standard water out of the tap. Um, so you are drinking, when you do that, about 16 million atoms of tritium. Okay. So every time you oh, drink that's water, that's what you're drinking. Okay. So <clears throat> tritium occurs one in one times 10 to the 18 atoms, every one times 10 to the 18 atoms, which is a million, million, million. Okay. So you've got one atom of tritium per million, million, million atoms of hydrogen. So naturally occurring tritium, it's at a very, very low level. Okay. They're talking about a million tons. A million tons sounds like a lot. It's a cube, a hundred meters by a hundred meters by a hundred meters. Okay, that's a million tons of water. So ultimately, it's not that much. The actual abundance of tritium in the waste is not high. Okay, so I knew we got you on for a reason today. Can I also just say, I bet Ruth. Josie's getting a really good education right now. <laughs> okay, let's so, go back to David. Yeah, I just wanted to say, yeah, uh, from from the measured amount of radiation from tritium, uh, we can tell there are about three grams, no more than three grams of tritium in that uh, one million tons of yeah. water in that 100 meter by 100 meter by 100 meter cube. Yeah. Um, but even that is a lot compared to the open ocean as well. So 
that's why it will be uh, the water once treated and filtered will be diluted by some other factor between 10 to 100, uh, maybe even more, depending on uh, which the characteristic is for the uh, particular water tanks that they're planning on um, emptying at any one time. So it's not a lot of tritium, to be honest. Right, and so, Dr. Krochik, um perhaps the controversy is more around... I understand they tried to release some of the water previously that maybe hadn't been filtered as perfectly as you and my co-host, co-panelist, um, <laughs> is promoting. They need better filters. Is, that, is that the problem? Well, you, you know, that happened in – that's exactly what happened in the first month or two months or even in the first year after the 2011 tsunami accident which destroyed the reactors and caused them to melt down because the seawater was being used and it was a, i think a brilliant idea uh to use seawater uh and that water was poured down on top of the nuclear reactor cores picked up all these cancer causing cesium strontium iodine all kinds of crazy uh atomic nuclei and that was deposited directly into the bay off Fukushima. And that was when the fishing industry really was destroyed. Um, so it, there haven't been any, I don't know of any accidental releases, but I know from the first first year and the first few months, that was when the majority, first 300,000 tons of uh, water uh, completely unfiltered, uh, undiluted, just flowed directly into the bay. And I, they had no other option, I don't think. So it makes sense that it mm. obviously is a sensitive subject, so we really do need yeah, the professors of the world to make sure that it is, um, it's done properly. <laughs> well, it's very it good to have you both on. <laughs> and you too, Ruth. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Croftier, kia Thank you for your time today. Uh, David Krofczyk is a senior lecturer in physics at uh, the University of Auckland. Uh, I certainly learned something new today about uh, tritium. Mm. Uh, Alan, very interesting. Absolutely. And, mm. you know, when it comes to eating a banana, for instance, Tell you know, more. <clears throat> well, bananas got potassium. You know, that's you need your potassium, don't you? So 0.012% of all the potassium in a banana is radioactive. Get out of here. You, no, bananas. I won't. <laughs> bananas. Bananas. Bananas are radioactive. Everything is radioactive. I'm sorry, folks. You can't get away from it. It's just a matter of amount. Is a green banana more radioactive than a yellow banana? No. Hang on. Oh. No. Is this pen radioactive? There'll, yeah, there'll be some carbon-14 in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Oh, Wallace's face again. <laughs> I can feel a panel um, weekly chemistry fact coming on. Oh, there we go, and it would be the better for it. I'll ask the producers. 26 past for the panel, Professor Alan Beckman and Ruth Money this afternoon. Anyway, uh, you also had a big interest, a really big interest, actually, uh, in trans, because who doesn't love uh, the social history of trans? We talked earlier to uh, MOTAT workshops manager Graham Anderson about uh, retooling their engines, so to go from coal to, coal to biofuels, and many got in touch about the journeys that you used to make on tram, and we're not talking tourism, we're talking getting from A to B, and with us today is Narelle. Hello, Narelle. Hello, Wallace. Oh, Narelle, <laughs> lovely to have you on the panel. Thank you. 
Thank you. Now, tell us about your tram journeys when you were young. <laughs> well, it was a long time ago. Um, we lived in Miramar in Wellington, and my mum and dad had a business down on Thorndon Quay. So when I was four and going to kindergarten in the morning, that would finish at midday, and I would walk through Miramar Central School and hop on the tram on Park Road and ride into the railway station. <laughs> at the age on, of four. <laughs> Narelle, at the age of four. <laughs> on my own. Wow. And That's cool. never, never worried about, um, there was never any consideration of safety. But um, one day my dad was on the tram and I thought that was the biggest treat of the lot. Oh, <laughs> bless Norelle. Yeah. I'm yeah. still, forget about trains, let's talk about kids independence. Uh, yeah. that's, um, that's, um, <laughs> that's unbelievable. It kind of speaks to, and doesn't Norelle, considering the amount of um, feedback we've had on trams, there's something that we love about trams, whether, oh, or, yeah. whether or not we want to bring them back. There's something, because I can recall going to actually seeing an artist called Prince in Melbourne and you'd hop on a tram free of charge and it'd take you straight to the stadium. Yes, yes. And we've just been riding on the trams in, um, where were we? We've been Sydney um, and Adelaide lately, so jumping on trams as well as their Australia does do trains. trams very well. Very yeah. well. They do, yeah. Ruth. Yeah. Very what, convenient. What about mm. you, Alan? Can you recall a tram ride of your days? Oh, jeez, I wish I was that old. Yeah. <laughs> no. no. He's they, um, Don't you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they cut yeah. trams out in Dunedin in the 50s, I believe, yeah. so just before yeah. my time. Because that's the thing, isn't it, Norrell? They really they crisscrossed the cities, including the regions, even into the smaller suburbs, didn't they? Yep, and it was always fun when the um, when the hook came off the wires, and you had to wait while they put them back on again. <laughs> like the trolley buses. Yeah. So, just yeah. remind me, Narelle, because uh, I am interested in this. As a four-year-old, what, what would you do? You'd, would you would you would there be a tram stop, and you just the tram would stop, and you'd jump on, and then you'd present yeah. your hop card or your bus card. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> oh, well, so what would you do? I don't know. I guess mum paid for it for a trip. They all knew me on the oh, tram. So, yeah. But you had to walk out into the middle of the road. So. Oh, it's getting worse. <laughs> this is getting worse. Maybe you showed them your cell phone QR code, Norella, at that we're, time. We're, your hop card, we're, Willis. We're enabling over-independence. I can't have you discussing on the panel being a four-year-old doing something by yourself. In That's a shocker. <laughs> Back in the day. Yeah. Back in the day, Norella. Lovely. Hey, nice yeah. to have your company. Stay listening. Thank you. All right. Thank you. There you go. That's Narelle, who is a four-year-old. Uh, God, rode the tram alone. From <laughs> I still can't believe that. I I I I'm I'm in fear of crossing the road with a little junior who's five and a half mm. up in Blockhouse Bay. Mm, mm. Yeah. You know, but a different time, I guess. Anyway.